everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dalapena, and on today's show, we have Dan Magala, the co-founder of Forefront, which is a sports marketing consultancy agency, and Dan and his crew have done extensive work coming up with sports marketing strategies and initiatives in the big four sports for franchises all across the NBA, the NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, heading into NASCAR. Olympic sports such as USA Hockey and in cricket their scope has expanded to help Cricket Australia launch the Big Bash in 2011. They were so successful with their involvement in that initiative that the ICC has got them on board to help market things like the Women's T20 World Cup in 2020, the Project USA initiative when the ICC took over the management of Cricket in America following the expulsion of USACA, and now Dan Magala and Forefront will be helping to market and develop fan strategies for the 2024 men's t20 world cup that's going to be co-hosted by cricket west indies and the usa and dan comes on the podcast to talk about all of his work inside and outside of cricket but first i want to thank the newest patriot of the stars and stripes cricket podcast on patreon who is a mystery identity contributor ed or is it ed the initials not quite sure, but whoever you are, thank you for jumping on board to support the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. And if you haven't already done so, anyone else out there can jump on board to support the podcast. Go to patreon.com and there's all sorts of different membership levels you can sign up for to help make the podcast run on an episode-by-episode basis, starting for as little as $3 a month. I also want to thank our title sponsors for the podcast, Dream Cricket, as well as Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Today's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket, we have the co-founder of Forefront, Dan Magala. Dan, welcome to the show. Great, great to be here and uh, loving the Ric Flair shirt too. Well done, uh, Peter. Who doesn't love Ric Flair? Come on. We all need some Ric Flair in our lives, right? Especially now. So thanks thanks for coming on. So Forefront, for people who don't know, Forefront, it's four. The number four front is is how the logo is. And you do a, a hell of a lot of sports marketing with... The big four sports in the U.S., you do NASCAR, you do some uh, Olympic sports, but for cricket purposes, one of the reasons I've got you on the show, your first foray into cricket was with the Big Bash and essentially helping get that off the ground from a marketing standpoint way back in 2011. And I want to talk quite a bit about that, especially as somebody who had a few guests like yourself, an American who grew up not knowing any concept of cricket, just like myself, we have a very shared experience. Exactly, exactly. So um, it's one of those stories that you would never believe it, but looking back, having lived that life, I wouldn't have had it any other way. So I'll take you back maybe 2009, I want to say, was sitting in my apartment, uh, forefront. We were in the early iterations of our company and I had my cell phone, had one of those old Nokia candy bar phones that uh, were all the rage at the time. We had a nice agency working with major league baseball teams, you know, a lot of the domestic sports. And you look at your phone 
and we're all kind of, um, you know, uh, hostages, I guess, to our caller ID. And there was like 13 numbers that appeared and it was ringing and I was like kind of worried and I answered the phone and it was this wonderful voice uh, with an Australian accent. It was James Sutherland um, calling, who was the then CEO of Cricket Australia and said that they were interested in talking to us. And I had no idea what cricket was. And I basically, James had called Major League Baseball and said, we really want to take a different approach to fan development, marketing, and really kind of grow the game to a new generation of fans. And Major League Baseball was the group that actually recommended that James reach out. So probably three weeks later, myself and my business partner, Josh Kreitzler, were on a plane to Melbourne. Uh, we went and did a two-day workshop for Cricket Australia tied to the Tri-Series at the MCG with Sri Lanka and India and kind of were off to the races. So, and I think what, um, I give a lot of credit to James um, in particular that I think they wanted uh, a strategic voice in the room to maybe look at, you know, we're, we're all kind of, we follow traditions, right? So, and I think he saw around the corner maybe some of those traditions a uh, little bit of a speed bump, if you will, right? So he wanted a group that didn't grow up with Don Bradman and, you know, the tradition of the sport and they could, and I'll use this phrase a lot, see it through the eyes of a child, right? So what could we do to grab their attention? So we got all the Yankee jokes. We got all the, all the good rubbish of, um, you know, not knowing the language and all of that, but we really understood the lane that we were hired to do. So fast forward, when the ashes occurred, I think the following year, it would have been 2011, if I'm getting my dates right, and went back and we would have presented to Cricket Australia's committee, a vision for Big Bash. So the colors of the uniforms, the city names, even if you look at the down to the science of what we picked for the team logos, there's no birds, there's no animals, there's no, this wasn't your father's cricket league. It was all aspirational, um, inspirational, kind of punch in the face identity that was something so unique that there was really kind of, in theory, no other team in that market that would have that identity, right? So you chose a color, you chose a city, you chose all of that. And we were kind of off to the races. So uh, happy to dive in more, but that was kind of the, the early beginning. It was just a ton of fun to just look at that through a different lens. And, and again, James, I think, gets all the credit for being crazy enough to, uh, to pull some Yankees into the creation of what is now the Big Bash League. Unpack a few things there to uh, start off with that. First trip to Australia, you said it would have been 2008-2009, the tri-series there with India and Sri Lanka. And I'm looking over some of the scorecards here. You stumbled into a series where Adam Gilchrist made centuries, Kumar Sangakara made a century, Sachin Tendulkar famously in the final. So Australia and India faced off in the final after after the group stage of the Tri-Series concluded and Sachin Tendulkar scored 117 not out in the first match of the final at the Sydney cricket ground. And then it scored 91 
in the second match. So not a bad series to stumble into for your first cricket experience. What stood out to you most about just the basic elements of cricket that would attract you as an American exposed to the game for the first time, regardless of the format? Yeah, I mean, I'm a baseball guy, you know, uh, first and foremost. So I really, really got obsessed immediately with the psychology and the gamesmanship and the strategy, just the simplicity between the bowler and the batsman. And I think I started to understand, you know, that it was almost like it, it felt Peter that first time. And I've said this to a lot of baseball executives, too, um, that, you know, I come back, I bring... I'll bring to my friends at the Chicago Cubs or the Minnesota Twins or the New York Mets. I'll, I'll give them cricket hats, right? And, you know, just kind of a classic exchange or a ball. And so the first time they hold a kookaburra, right? Like it's, it's a pretty interesting moment. But what you realize is I kind of felt like it was almost like a, a book that was really familiar, but it had been translated into a movie, right? Like that it was somewhat similar, but it was a little nuanced and a little different um, in the way that it flowed. So I loved, I started to think about in that first game that I attended, almost like which baseball players would do really well in cricket. And then I started to think about which cricketers, I, I talked to Gilly about that, right? I thought he would be a brilliant uh, baseball player as a pinch hitter. I mean, his ability to just have contact you know, I kind of bugged him at one point there. You, should, you could have a second life at the end of your career. I know some people, right? And, um, you know, that was kind of a joyful moment. But I think I also like, um, as the day went on, you know, I'm kind of very passionate. I'm kind of a nerd for the fan experience. I kind of walked around the MCG and just looked at, you know, the tradition that was there, the fan base, the passion, um, the different age groups that were there, that really kind of struck me, you know, in a unique way. So I almost had kind of two experiences at once. One was just as a, as a true personal level lover of sport, just in this whole new world that I was trying to translate. And then the marketer in me just kind of saw, I think, you know, at that match in particular, um, I didn't see a lot of kids you know, in the same way that I would ex have expected to. So I kind of use that experience in a little bit of our earliest strategies, um, you know, for that, that, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that the dads of a certain generation, you know, all that crew that was going for to see Sachin and, you know, that whole crew also understood what the next generation would look like and how, call it, consumption had changed a little bit. So, I think in some of those earliest briefs that we did, we, we definitely helped to do that. And I think we saw things that maybe you don't see when you're so close to it, which is, I think, what James's original vision was for us, too. You referenced the Cubs. You, I've heard some other interviews you do where you talk about the BBL rivalries for Melbourne and Sydney as being akin to White Sox and Cubs. So I think it's fairly obvious you grew up in Chicago. You're a Chicago guy. From what research I've done, I think you're from the Western suburbs originally. Yep. So talk to, to the listeners about the sports atmosphere that you grew up in, in Chicago, what that was like, and how did you fall in love with the sports scene? And was baseball your first love? Or, or again, at, at the time you were growing up in the, I, I'm assuming the late 80s, early 90s, the Bears and the, the Bulls are the more successful oh, yeah. teams in that area. So what were the sports that you were really keen on growing up? And was it always your like childhood dream 
to go into sports marketing or did you have some other vision in mind? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think, um, you know, and, and I think about this, I've got a seven and a five-year-old right now. And for me, I grew up in what I like to call a mixed marriage in Chicago. Uh, my mom is a diehard Cub fan and dad is a diehard White Sox fan. So if you unpack that, I grew up in a baseball loving family, right? And there was always a baseball game on, really into statistics, keeping score, the little nuances of the game, right? Very similar to cricket. And when I was a young boy, what the blessing was of growing up in a market like Chicago, a two team town was, you know, from call it April through September, there was always a game on because they would just work that way at the time. The variety, we could always go to a different game if I wanted to. So I had a unique relationship with my dad to go to a Sox game and then with my mom for a Cubs game and vice versa. But what I kind of first really maybe realized, you know, or, or met my first experience with maybe really loving the sport was really through the players. And, you know, Peter, like you, a writer, and I used to start writing letters to baseball players and just my mom would edit them. And like, she taught me these words, selflessness to selfishness that um, I, I wasn't, I basically, I wanted to give a compliment to a player and ask them a question. And if something good came back, that was a benefit. And um, so she would edit, she was kind of my first editor and I got so into it, like obsession probably when I was like seven years old, that she made me start mowing lawns on our, our block uh, to pay for stamps and envelopes because she didn't want to spend the money anymore. And I would just go through a baseball card set has 792 cards. So I would go numerically and write 792 letters to baseball players over the course of a summer. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of a lost art now you know, the, the marketer in me, it's a retweet is the new autograph, right? You know, those things, but I got a stack of letters and I really got into maybe the personal side of the players at a young age. And that never really left me. So I think in some of the things that you saw us do with BBL was probably inspired by that little boy who wrote letters uh, to baseball players and encouraging some of the players to really do the same. So growing up in Chicago, um, you're right. Then we had the Bears, you know, one of the iconic teams with the Super Bowl shuffle, you know, and kind of a pop culture experience. The Cubs, I would tell you, you know, you learn optimism and overcoming obstacles at a really young age, right? The running joke for the Cubs when I was growing up is any team can have a bad century. I think the longest streak without a World Series, but you kind of see behind me, uh, that was a gift from our friends at the Cubs. That's the number 16 from the Wrigley Field scoreboard the year they won in 2016. So a little kid in me loves that. And then, you know, who couldn't have loved your teenage years with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls? So it was like having the Beatles live down the street. So I think in some weird way, all of those experiences probably triggered a marketer for me. Um, I remember, by the way, as a kid, Michael Jordan, before he became Michael Jordan, doing appearances at our local grocery store when he first started, you know, and you just kind of realize, and I, I tell that to players sometimes of, you know, that stuff really matters for your brand. And, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, Walter Payton was kind of a bears legend. 
Um, Ryan Sandberg was my childhood hero, who was the second baseman for the Chicago Cubs. And you kind of saw some of the things that they did in the community, maybe before the salaries were as astronomical, even as they became and they are now. And I think that's a really important lesson for young players. So I like to say that whether it's to a cricketer, um, to an NBA player or a major league baseball player of like, well, Michael Jordan did this. Um, and you're saying no, you know, is a good reminder of early in your career, you know, that's where you really adopt a favorite player. Right. And I'm watching that my son right now, he's obsessed with Devin Booker and the Phoenix Suns. And we've become passionate Phoenix Suns fans because he, Devin Booker wears purple shoes. His favorite color is purple. Devin Booker's dad went to University of Missouri, where I went, and Devin Booker's dad was my favorite player. So in my son's eyes, he's kind of rationalized that. So I think, Peter, that's even a good example of why, if you think about it, you know, this Beyond Borders moment, uh, which I think goes to a lot of the things that is going on in global sport, my seven-year-old self probably wouldn't have been a fan of any team but a team in Chicago but my son's obsessed with a team in Phoenix and he doesn't see that as being any different than maybe I did with my team down the street uh, in that same way. So as a marketer uh, and a dad, I mean, that's incredibly exciting. And I think that's kind of a showcase of we live in a digital world now. And if we really look at this through the eyes of our kids, it's a whole different ball game when you, when you think about growth of different sports and games and teams around the world. Some of the things that you touched on there bring back a lot of nostalgia for my own childhood and memories and playing sports growing up. And one of the things I think about hearing you describe the things you did, the baseball cards. I mean, growing up, I was uh, Christmas every year, me and my brothers, our Christmas wish list was we want a, a wax box set of tops, upper deck, Donruss, you know, whatever baseball card sets we could get looking for the the special insert card for whether it was baseball cards or, or ice hockey cards, I was a huge hockey guy growing up. And yeah. talking about the local sports heroes showing up to local events. So, I, I mean, I grew up a Mets fan, but I'll, I'll never forget one of the first big, I guess big in relative terms, celebrity sightings we had was at our Little League, end of season Little League awards dinner. They yeah. would try to, to rope in a player to come. And the first one I can remember was Alvaro Espinosa. Alvaro Espinosa was not by any means a star. He started for the Yankees as a shortstop, but he was very much a, a role player through much of his career. And even as a Yankees player, it was like, oh my God, like we've got a major leaguer here at our awards dinner. I didn't care that he was Yankee and I'm a Mets fan. Like David Cohn didn't come to our awards dinner. You know, Bobby Bonilla didn't come to our awards dinner, but Alvaro Espinosa came to our awards dinner. And that was, that was like a special thing. Like, oh my God, I can like take my picture with an actual major league baseball player, that kind of stuff. So, you know, you mentioned seeing guys in the supermarket. Is there any one letter that you got back from a player that was especially meaningful to you or the first one you got back that you felt like, oh my God, like they actually responded and it was totally worth it spending all this time writing these letters or any other kind of experience like that, that was especially impactful to you growing up that put you on the path that you're on today? You know, I, I think um, I'll, I'll answer that two ways. I think one, you know, just the pure joy of running home from school to get to the mailbox, like that, that kid from A Christmas Story looking for his old teen, right? Like that was me every day. And to just go through the mailbox 
and see whether it was the Houston Astros, the LA Dodgers, the Seattle Mariners, it didn't matter. It's that, that Espinosa story, right? It's a major league baseball player knows you're alive, right? Like it's a seven-year-old kid. And then I would just go and want to research him, right? And I would sort them, I would alphabetize all the letters, but I'll tell you this. And I think, I think this is how I've tried to live my career is I've always wanted to be a, a sports marketer, an executive that your 10 year old self would be proud of, right? Like I think about that when the first BBL match that like, wow, like you're a part of this or now we work with the New York Mets, right? Like, in, you know, all of that. So there's a part of me that always is that 10 year old that I'm accountable for, but I had one moment in particular you know, the, the Joe and Phil Necro uh, were the two brothers, right? And my mom uh, would always have me ask a question. And her challenge to me was don't ask them just a question about their job, ask them about themselves, like what they learned as a little kid, what their favorite subject was. And I, I think I learned human connection a little bit more because, you know, as a reporter, right? Where, you know, you essentially, it's just a different dialogue than your standard kind of question. So I had asked Joe Necro, what was it like that your brother's in the big leagues, right? And he wrote a beautiful letter back of like family is everything. And here's what I learned from my brother and everything. So fast forward to my adult self and um, I worked with the Baseball Hall of Fame and I got a chance to write this book called Dugout Wisdom where I got to spend a day with every living Hall of Famer and the goal was um, maybe a story in their life where they learned, uh, overcame an obstacle, got life-changing advice. So I got to know Phil Necro as a result of that. And his um, brother had passed away and he got really emotional talking about his brother. So I literally went to my parents' house, all my stuff is still there, dug through. I found the letter that Joe sent to me 20 years ago, whenever that was. And I sent Phil this letter that his brother in his own handwriting had just eloquently talked about how much he admired his brother. And to send that to him after his brother had passed away, I almost felt like a gift um, in the same way all those players gave me a gift, all that. And that was, that was probably really special. So, you know, that's a full circle life moment, right? That we're all grateful for, but um, because of the kindness that Joe gave, was able to re-forward that. So that's probably my favorite letter of all that group. And, and I don't even have it anymore, right? It's uh, was sent to Phil. Dan, I try and keep things light on this podcast. You're going to make people at home get their tissue boxes out if you have any more stories like that. Yeah, well, but isn't that though the emotion of sport? Um, yeah. We talk a lot at Forefront about the art, heart, and science um, of uh, fan development strategy. And to us, the heart is the reason that it's in the middle. It's the most important, right? Your Espinoza story is perfect, right? I have connection to different uh, cricketers that aren't the Sachins and the Gillies of the world, right? Those guys are certainly another level, but sometimes it's just the simplicity of even the mascot, right? You know, that you have. And I think it's important for us to remember that of like, why we fell in love with some of this in the first place and why, you know, you're talking about it 20 years later after it happened too. You're talking about the personal connection. I, I think that's such an important thing that a lot of people overlook when they meet athletes. They've got this 
television aura and this image in their mind of, oh, I've seen this person and it's like this far away fantasy almost. And they forget that they're actually real people and they enjoy the same things that you and I do. And, and one of the things that I remember about the Espinosa interaction as a kid was that we actually got to spend, me and my brothers got to spend more time kind of just in his presence interacting with him because my mom was a high school Spanish teacher. And yeah. so she could communicate with him in Spanish. He, he, even as a, at that stage, I think he'd been in the major leagues five, six years. And for people wondering, how did Alvaro Espinosa start for the New York Yankees as a shortstop? This is the pre-Derek Jeter days, if people believe that yeah. such a the time existed. But um, he didn't speak English. He'd been in the big leagues for how many years? Didn't speak English. And so his wife is there. His whole family was there. His wife is there. I think he had one or two kids at the time. He was signing autographs, taking pictures with people who want him, but he couldn't speak English. And my mom was able to oh, that's incredible. continue the interaction. And we must have been up there 10, 15 minutes just hanging out with him, talking with him. And after he was done signing autographs for all the, all the kids on our Little League team, he continued to, to stay and talking with my mom because Alvaro, his wife, the whole family, they could talk to my mom. And they were, my mom was the only person in the room who could have a conversation with him, just a normal conversation about non-baseball things. And, you know, my mom could talk about us and how we got into baseball, me and my brothers and this and that. And he wanted to, he wanted to hang out with us. He wanted to yeah. talk to my mom specifically because uh, she was the only person who he had something in common with yeah. in that entire room of maybe 200, 250 little leaguers that like, and you think about it and it's like, geez, you know, how uncomfortable might that have been for him? as a situation where he's coming in he can't speak english he knows he's supposed to be there and he might have gotten an appearance for you whatever to sign autographs take pictures but generally speaking he was probably very uncomfortable the fact that he's got to be there for an hour and a half two hours sign on and he, he can't talk to anybody and my mom shows up and he's probably breathing a huge sigh of relief like oh my god somebody can speak spanish somebody i can talk to <laughs> you know? and those things matter yeah well and, and i think that's part of that learning is you know, to see it from both sides, right? You know, that's intimidating, whether you're a young Michael Jordan going to a grocery store, right? You're a little overwhelmed. I remember um, uh, working on Dugout Wisdom, Willie Mays told me, so pretty amazing, probably one of the greatest baseball players ever. He's from a small town in Alabama. And he said when he first went into a locker room when he was playing for the New York Giants, he felt there were more people in that room um, than his entire hometown and he was scared to death and he's like I didn't feel comfortable in that locker room but put me on the play on the playing field and I was fine so he's like I just tried to get out of the field as fast as I could but then you start to develop these relationships people are high-fiving in the street and he's he's kind of got these iconic photos of him playing stickball in alleys with kids because I think that made him comfortable when he had a bat in his hand right um, to engage. And, and I think probably that bat was almost your mom's Spanish in that moment, right? For Espinoza. And I think that's an important lesson, right? For any organization, any player, put yourself in a situation you're comfortable with, you know, and kind of come alive, right? Like I love when there's like shoot arounds that you get to go to with kids for basketball players, or, you know, even just an instruction um, for a cricketer as an example, you know, versus just the cocktail party. I wouldn't want to be dropped blind in a room of 250 people that everybody knows who I am, right? Like, so I think that's part of it. And just kind of helping both sides be successful. And, you know, I think the goal of that is what you experienced with your brother 
and your mom, you're talking about it all these years later, you know, that's a first and everlasting impression. And that's how you get people to really fall in love authentically. And that to us is that art, heart and science of the heart of it. And it's sometimes easier said than done. We take it for granted that you just can't troll a player out there and expect that to happen. You got to have a little focus to it. Dan, you mentioned earlier, holding up your mug, you went to Missouri. Now, did you major in sports marketing there or marketing in general, or did you have some other major? And, and how did you kind of get on the professional path? You, you talked about all these things about growing up and the kind of visions you had and being a fan, but in terms of a professional capacity, did it start at Missouri or was it a little bit further down the road? So I wanted to be a sports journalist. That's what I thought from the time I was probably realized that you could get paid to do that. I wanted to be, a, you know, on-air reporter and Missouri has a fantastic journalism school. So I went there for that sole reason and was a broadcast journalism major. So they own the NBC station in town. So at the time, you know, when Katie Couric in the morning would go, we're going to kick it to your local news station, it would be students like me doing the morning show. And I, I, I joke that it's like we go through puberty on the air at like 19. Our grades were our ratings. So it was pretty intense. But the goal of the Missouri journalism education was you got your, your first job out of the way, essentially, while you were a student, right? So I did an internship with an ABC station in Louisville, Kentucky. Got to cover and report on the Kentucky Derby, a lot of horse racing, college basketball. And when I was there, um, I got this scholarship through Churchill Downs, the um, very famous racetrack for sports journalists. So they were, they were trying to give scholarships to future sports journalists with hopes that they would develop a passion to report on horse racing. And what occurred for me was um, I met a guy there named Roger Valdeseri, who was just kind of one of those angels in your life that you need early in your career. And he um, was the sports information director for Notre Dame Athletics. So he's actually in the scene in Rudy where they're handing jerseys. There's actually one that says Valdeseri because he's such a legend at Notre Dame and a really special guy. And he took me for a walk around the track. And he said to me, um, hey, if you're going to really go for it in this business, you should learn the business side too. You should do another internship with a team and learn how ticket sales work, revenue, the, the business is getting more complicated. And it was kind of like one of those scenes in a movie in your life. And I actually did it. I got an internship with a minor league baseball team right outside of Chicago, the King County Cougars. And I fell in love with what I would call revenue generating storytelling. I kind of learned how to take my journalism hat to maybe see things differently to help teams sell tickets, sponsorships, fan development. I was a mascot. I mean, I did it all. And I remember going back and telling my parents and my, you know, career counselor at Mizzou, I want to work in sports marketing. And they're like, what is that? Um, so it wasn't as sophisticated then, but was able to get a job right out of school, um, marrying both of my passions. It was called Team Marketing Report. And um, at the time, that was a sports business publication that we reported on the business of sport. And we would write kind of white paper case studies on fan engagement strategies and 
Um, I was kind of young and stupid enough to um, just really hit the ground running. And a lot of those connections from that early days of studying the business of sport, a lot of those uh, men and women are now presidents of teams when they might've just been starting out that were my sources back then. So an incredible learning for me coming right out of school and then, you know, was kind of off to the races from, from there. The more I talk to you, Dan, the more I discover we have a lot of things in common. That yeah, I know. We have. So I went to Creighton University and for people who don't know, that's in Omaha, Nebraska. And from a sports perspective, it's known as the home of the College World Series. It's the only fixed host site for any of the NCAA Division One championships. And they've hosted the College World Series. I think it's up to 67, 68 years now. I've lost track. Whereas college football playoff and NCAA basketball championship is at a rotating site, obviously. But Creighton is primarily a medical school. All my roommates were pre-med throughout my four years there. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go there was because I could see, as opposed to going to a Syracuse or an Arizona or a Missouri, where I thought there's no way in hell I'm going to get noticed or seen. I want to try and go someplace where I can get opportunities immediately. And I thought if I can do that at Creighton, because when I met with people there, people in the athletic department made it seem like they were desperate for help. That wound up happening. My work study job at Creighton for all four years, I worked in the athletic department and I split duties between sports information and sports marketing. So some of the days I would go into the sports information building and I would be um, helping to design the game day programs, entering in roster information and statistical information. And other times I would be working game day events for sports marketing. So like one of the, the first jobs I had was I was a flag runner. I was the guy who ran, had the had the Creighton flag and ran the, the team out into the field, whether it was the men's soccer team or the volleyball team or the basketball team. I Wally pipped my way into the role because the guy who did it, he was sick one night and then they asked me to do it. And then I kept on doing it for a couple of years. And I was so nervous the first time I did it because I thought all I could think of was at the soccer stadium, there's 6,000 people, a brand new stadium, state-of-the-art facility for soccer, one of the best in America. I thought, oh my God, this thing is heavy. It's awkward running with it the way it's balanced, the flag. And I thought, oh my God, if I fall down, 6,000 people are going to laugh at me. So I better not screw this up. And that was my motivation. And then onward to basketball, playing at the Quest Center at the time. I don't know what its name now, but the big arena in downtown Omaha had just opened 20,000 seats. And I'm thinking as I'm running, you know, the nationally ranked men's basketball team onto the court, holy shit, I better not trip and fall because 20,000 people are going to laugh at me. (laughs) So there's, I did that. I did one of the other things I did was I was the stadium DJ for certain events. So, you know, like momentum is happening. Team is fired up. Like I'm the guy who would have hit like zombie nation to play, to get the crowd going crazy, uh, going into a TV timeout or something like that. So I I got to experience quite a few different roles. You mentioned mascot. You got to be a mascot. What are some of the other roles that you experienced that were encompassing the spectrum of the crazy and the zany and the wild things that, you know, you are where you are now, but you had to start somewhere. What what were the things that you were asked to do that you wouldn't have dreamed of doing? Well, I think um, there's probably two experiences that I had with Kane County, uh, the minor league baseball team, which is the earliest of days. And I'll, I'll come back to that kind of Wally Pip tie too. But, you know, I show up for this internship, right? I got my one pair of khaki pants to look like I'm a grown up and like a collared you know, shirt that I wear on my first day. And um, I'm in the lobby of the ballpark and I'm just in heaven, right? You know, just to see this stadium, right? In this office. And there's like four or five other guys that look just like me. And we get taken into this conference room 
and the GM of the team comes in and be like, okay, you guys are the five interns and here's the first life lesson. The most important thing is ticket sales. And then after that, the next most important lesson is ticket sales. And then after that, it's ticket sales. So we're going to start out, we're going to put numbers on the board. And after one week, they'll just be four of you guys. And then after another week, there'll be three and so on and so on until there's only one standing. And if you're going to make it in this business, you got to understand ticket sales. So he ripped out pages of the phone book, handed us each our list, told us to hit the phones. And I'm so fortunate. One guy just left. So the first week was basically there was already a loser. I think about that a lot in my career of had that week gone differently, it could have been a different story. But uh, my dad's a deacon at our church and I was really struggling and I begged him, could I get in front of the congregation and sell some tickets? So that was probably one of those moments that that's just the rawness of our business, right? Getting up in a room full of people and selling tickets. And uh, I was able to figure out creatively how to do group sales, hit my numbers and you know, kind of go from there. When I was at King County, I'm either proud of this or not, I don't know, but we also, the rawness of a small staff, every night after the games, if you were a first year employee, we had to pick up garbage in the stands, aisle by aisle, seat by seat. I could tell you, I started to understand where the babies were to avoid diapers, but you know, you want to talk about a Mr. Miyagi kind of paint the fence moment of understanding a stadium, pick up garbage for 14 straight nights in a minor league stadium in a homestand. Even when it's pouring rain, you got to still clean it, but you could see beer sales based on garbage. So not the prettiest experience. I don't think that's done anymore, but um you talk about I, I disagree. I'm pretty sure it's still done today, Dan. Okay. <laughs> I've, well, I've been there myself. Yeah. I, I okay. picked up garbage at the Creighton games. Yeah. So, um, but you learn a lot, right? And I think that's probably a lesson is where I went to grad school at Ohio University. Doc Higgins is kind of this like legendary guy who's groomed a lot of some of the top executives in sport. And he had a saying that um, resonates across generations of Every person you meet is an opportunity to learn something and every situation you're in is an opportunity to learn. So, you know, that garbage analogy is something that I think about, right? You know, I saw some of my other kind of fellow staff members that would just be angry while picking up garbage. And I'm just sitting there, huh? There was 43 beers sold in this row versus just empty, you know, you're just kind of spinning. You're always kind of head up and listening. And um, I think that curiosity is really important in our business too, even when you're picking up garbage. So you had this experience with the minor league team in King County. Then I know you also later on worked for both the Chicago Bears and the San Diego Padres. And then at some point you also became a co-owner of a, a minor league baseball team in Fort Myers, Florida, the Fort Myers Miracle, which is a single A affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. So kind of building off of what you just said about the King County experience, what were the roles you had within those franchises and what did you learn most through each experience? I'll backtrack one story and then I'll, I'll share the lessons from each of those three. When I was at Team Marketing Report, you, you, Peter, talked about your Wally Pip example, right? You know, being in the right place, 
and being dumb and smart enough to lean in, right? Like when I worked at Team Marketing Report, we also published, we had a monthly magazine that we would write for. And the readership was like chief marketing officers from teams around the big four. Creighton probably was a subscriber at the time. And we also published books. And, you know, that was kind of the goal was to be able to write a book, right? You know that as a, as a journalist. So I started, this was 1998, 99. I'm a couple of years out of Mizzou. And I started writing a column called Cyber Spotlight because the teams were really interested in what they called these video game machines, which were websites. They were just coming out. So my job was to review, is the website good? What should it have? And all of those things. So I walked in as like a cocky kid to my boss and said, I think this internet thing is going to be a big deal. And I'd like to write a book on it. And he gets up and he closes his door and he goes, Dan, no one's interested in those video game machines. I don't think we can buy it. Uh, I don't think people would pay for it. But if you want to do it on your own time, I'll publish it and you can prove me wrong. So I was kind of angry because I, you know, wanted to make a little money and uh, went home, told my roommate, who was also a Mizzou journalist alum. And I said, you know, I, I pitched the idea today and he kind of killed it. And he said, are you an idiot? You know, you're 23 years old and somebody's going to publish a book. So kind of changed my perspective. And I head down, I worked a lot of nights and mornings. I got to interview the commissioners of all the leagues, David Stern, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, and they were curious. So you became kind of this aggregator of information. And the book came out, did really well. And I'm sitting in my office one day and the owner of the Chicago Bears calls uh, that he had read the book and the Bears had yet to have a website. And he said, I read the book. I understand you're a Bears fan. Um, would you be interested in meeting to um, help us create and launch the first ever ChicagoBears.com? So I think the Wally Pitt nature of that moment was really critical in my development at an early age, but I also pursued a passion, not a paycheck, right? Like, and that was kind of a key learning for me early on to get access to all those people was invaluable. I learned so much, right? You know, you, you know, as a reporter, um, you learn more from asking questions, right? And that's the people that you get access to. So uh, I went to the Bears and loved it. Uh, working for my favorite team. Uh, the two lessons that I learned there was Walter Payton, who was one of my Mount Rushmore childhood heroes, when I was there, he um, was diagnosed with liver cancer, a fatal diagnosis. So I got to work with him on his digital eulogy, which was incredibly special. That was so ahead of our time of how to, you know, use that sense of community, right? And then my boss and mentor, Ted Phillips, who's still the CEO of the Chicago Bears, he helped me navigate a boardroom. I used to feel really intimidated, you know, in that kind of environment. He told me some words that stick with me today of, you know, you, you earn the right to be in the room. And then once you're in the room, how do you add value to it? And I, I probably early days at the Bears would try to blend in and he gave me the courage to maybe think differently. Um, and I think that was really helpful. So Fast forward, uh, the Fort Myers miracle, one of my earliest mentors, Mike Vec, who's kind of the legendary 
uh, sports marketer, team owner, minor league baseball, like a PT Barnum, right? Of sports marketing and just an incredible human being to boot. He and Bill Murray, the comedian, they owned a bunch of teams with Marv Goldklang and the Fort Myers Miracle were one of them. So really as a thank you and just more done out of just genuine friendship, gave me an opportunity to be part of the ownership group, which was so cool. So to see it through their lens, and especially with Mike, his concept is fun is good. And just a reminder of like, you're not in the business of baseball. It's just, you're in the fun business, right? So just those little things that he did and was able to pick up on um, was just tremendous. And then fast forward to the San Diego Padres, Tom Garfinkel, who's now the CEO of the Miami Dolphins, uh, was the CEO of the Padres. So he recruited me uh, to head up kind of a creative partnerships division uh, for the Padres to kind of think differently about the organization. And he gave me a lot of freedom to be me and maybe kind of that revenue generating storytelling approach to things that we could do. So um, we did the foul pull. You kind of see the tailor made behind me. We essentially turned the right field foul pull into a 85 foot golf club as a earned media PR stunt. And that was my experience with Tom. I'd say, how do you see colors where others see black and white in the Padres? And then also to fail forward. I think in this business, you fail a lot. And I think I learned how to, you know, we had pitched other ideas that were big and ambitious that failed, but keep moving on, right? Um, and I think those were some key lessons beyond the actual tactics. And um, that kind of fueled the vision to, to launch what is now Forefront too. Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 7 713-534-2195. That's Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. You mentioned Vec, Mike Vec, Bill Vec, the Vec family. For people in cricket who aren't aware, very, very famous family in baseball and just marketing the sport in general and came up with so many incredible and famous and sometimes infamous ideas to to have sports promotions at events and really get fans in the seats at the major league level and at the minor league level. So from that standpoint, and whether it's before your association with Mike Vec or, or since then, what would you say is the most successful marketing idea that you've had a part in to come up with that really helped transform a local team, whether it was one of the ones you just mentioned, like the, the turn the, the foul pole into a golf club or something else. And on the flip side, one of the, the things that I think of when I, I think of the name Vec is Disco Demolition Night at the White Sox in the 70s. So is there an idea, like you said, some of the failures you learned from something that you thought would be an amazing idea that totally bombed that you learned a lot from to help improve your ability to, to market things going forward? Yeah, so, so I would say, um, you know, for me, um, and it's interesting for your audience and, and your view, you know, I've got some ones that are here domestically, but if you just ask me, kind of deep in my heart and mind, um, what I'm most proud of uh, as a marketing idea, it's the Big Bash League. 
you know, for so many reasons. And there's so many elements of that, of things that we did right. And, you know, Anthony Everard is a almost a brother in the sense of breaking down barriers and ideas, but, you know, the light up stump to watch that come to life and from pitch to pitching an idea. I love it when there's some people in the room that just go like this and, you know, get kind of a little, you can tell you're making them uncomfortable. Right. And that to me is always a good sign, but then to see that come to life, watch it on TV and then um, look at the grounds and look over and see that eight-year-old kid, just like your Espinosa story, whose mind is blown, right? And even the dad, right? Or the parent in that moment that maybe is a little skeptical, but now he's seeing it through his kid's eyes. And this is a conduit of that child falling in love with something that mom or dad love in cricket. Those are my favorite moments, right? Making something happen that had never been happened before. And um, it's an addiction, right? You wanna do it more often. From a failure perspective, you always feel that, you know, but you have to be relentless in being, if it, it's okay if it does fail. I remember first night of BBL, hey, let's enjoy this because it might not last past a season. You know, you've gotta have that part of you, right? But the butterflies in your stomach that exist there and, you know, that comes from more at-bats, right? You just get better at it and the perfectionist kind of prevails. But I mentioned the, the San Diego Padre, the foul pole. You know, prior to joining the Padres, one of the cool ideas we did was we changed the game times at the White Sox from 7.05 to 7.11, which we sold as a sponsorship to 7.11. And that was probably the first one that was really clever, you know, but you start to feel a little bit like Millie Vanilli, right? Like a one hit wonder. Can you do this again? So Tom, you know, really just wanted me at the Padres to essentially do a 7-Eleven idea. So Stanley Tools, um, Stanley Black & Decker, you know, big tool maker, they were sniffing around a lot of the baseball teams to come up with a big brand identity, right? A big sponsorship. So I had this vision to turn the foul pole into a tape measure where you could measure the distance of a home run, as well as the vertical, right? So, I mean, you know, Peter, to say we went all in was an understatement. We had a brilliant graphic designer that turned this into, you know, the foul pole that you could measure the top. It looked brilliant. Dick Enberg was our play-by-play -play guy. I had him record a game seven final walk-off home run against the Stanley tape measure, you know, for the presentation. And I go to the meeting and I'm there to pitch it. And the folks from Stanley, they had their whole, they're like, you have the 7-Eleven guy here, right? Like we have a big idea that's coming. And when we got to the pitch, they introduced everybody in the room and they're like, this is John who oversees our big ticket items, hammers and power tools. This is Jane, you know, our other revenue items of like uh, screwdrivers and went down the line and be like, oh, we've even got our kind of lower brand team people that oversee things like rule, rulers and tape measures that are uh, loss leaders. And it was like, I'm like, it was like one of those Southwest commercials, right? Like want to get away. Um, and it bombed. I mean, just a whore, like I didn't see the other side. Right. And I give Tom a lot of credit at the Padres of allowing to fail forward 
but you have to go through those, you know, those strikeouts, if you will, to get better the next time. So I've just gotten more methodical. Our team, right, the science part, we use a lot of data to understand and kind of study the other side of the coin. But that was probably my biggest, lowest moment, right, in terms of just something that I really thought would work that bombed. Um, but you do have those butterflies, right? When the, the light up stump is an example of if this goes wrong, you know, everybody's going to look at the people that helped create it, right? So, but I want that pressure too. I don't, I don't mind it. But at the same time, those are, those are things to definitely be aware of as, as you grow in your career too. And the bullseye is only even bigger for you because you're a soft target. If, if it fails, oh, blame the American. This idiot doesn't know anything about cricket. Let's get him the hell out of here and go back to the people who actually know something about cricket. Totally. There was one night early in the BBL year one. I can't remember what paper it was, but you know it was labeled the Mickey Mouse of cricket. And it was the pre-Christmas games that were lower attended. And then right after Christmas, once, you know, kind of things changed, you know, just had an explosion of attendance, right? But there was the, is this the Mickey Mouse of Christmas? And do we have the Americans to blame? And you just need to plow through it, right? You can't let those kind of perspectives change the vision that you have. And if you are going to go down, go down, right? Like, and you know, plow through with that vision to, to be able to succeed. One other quick thing I want to ask you before we, we get more in, in depth into BBL and the cricket, your experiences as a sports marketing consultant working or as an employee working in the marketing wing of some of these teams versus being an owner. So when you became a co-owner of the minor league franchise in Florida, how did that change your philosophy or change your appreciation for how things can be done or need to be done from a cost standpoint? as opposed to, you know, an employee who's hired to do things. Now you've got an ownership stake. If, if it fails, it's your money. It's coming out of your pocket. So, yeah. and that can affect the ability to actually proceed with plans or pull the plug or how long you can persist with something before you need to go to option B. So how, how did being an owner, if in any way, change the way you started to conceptualize and approach certain things? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, I think like, in all situations, you should try to think like an owner. I think having that had that exposure first at the Bears, you know, and doing something at the time, right? You were basically developing a new medium for them, direct report to ownership. So you kind of had permission to think like that, I think is always there. I think what I learned, um, you know, most even from Mike Vack is good ideas don't have to cost anything too. And I think if you look at some of those early BBL examples. I remember there was, I don't know if it was year one or year two, you know, we were working with all the teams to come up with the biggest idea to engage kids. And I think some of the major market teams, the Sydney and the Melbournes, well, what's the budget for it? Well, don't worry about the budget, just come up with the best idea, right? At the time. And Perth Scorchers and the Hobart Hurricanes came back with ideas that we worked on with them. And one of them uh, for Perth was to move a press conference from the stodgy press conference room that you've been in a million times. And why don't we do it as an all school assembly at an elementary school and have a contest to have kids introduce a new player signing and turn it more into a pep rally. So 
Um, it actually saved money, if you think about it. You didn't have to buy the deli sandwiches for the reporters and everything. And it turned it into an event. And then Hobart just came up with the simple idea of win a chance to have a player drive you to school on the last day of school. Uh, so it was a database promotion. I'm not going to confirm or deny that maybe, you know, the player and the winner that was chosen happened to share a zip code, postal code, right? Um, that it made it easier. But those are good examples that I think you learn from people like Mike Beck is what's the best idea first and then figure out, is there an efficient ec economical way to do it? Or, you know, sometimes the reverse of it, it's paralysis by analysis where what's the budget and we'll spend to that budget. I think you flip it a little bit. And I think a lot of times there's more creative ways to achieve those things. So that probably, if you really think like an owner and it's your own dollars, you would look for the best idea at the lowest cost versus what's the dollar amount that I have to spend, like you're managing mom and dad's credit card a little bit. And I think getting teams of all levels to change their mindset like that is a really powerful lesson. It's such an incredible point you made to start off with before going on to expand on it. Just, I see it so often in U.S. cricket in particular and cricket in general, but especially in U.S. cricket, there are so many excuses about lack of engagement with regards to building up membership base or lack of engagement with regards to getting fans to come out to games, whether it's paid or for free. That could be for U.S. national team games or it could, even something like Cricket All-Stars going back to 2015 and other events in between. As CPL and it's the excuse I always hear from people and it, it just absolutely frosts me is oh we didn't have a marketing budget oh we didn't have we didn't have enough money we don't have money set aside to do marketing and you just hit it great ideas don't have to cost anything great ways to market they don't necessarily need to have the cost or fixed cost and if you're creative enough you can find ways to engage people and you've given so many ideas and examples of that and I hope some U.S. cricket administrators, local, regional, national are paying attention to what you're saying, Dan, because yeah. the proof is in the pudding. Exactly. No, and, and, you know, that's a perfect example, right? You know, we've worked with the ICC and USA Cricket for a while now in various forms. And you have to have, you have to play the long game. But to me, those are obstacles and excuses, right, as to why things aren't working. But like, you know, you see the momentum there. Some of these things like even BBL or, you know, the Padres, right? They're not the Dodgers. Um, they never will be. But at the same time, what advantages in the disadvantage do we, did we have? We could outcreate the Dodgers, right? As a, as a good example. And I think once you have those at-bats where you start to kind of, we call it box above your weight, right? Where you start to do that you can do things that the others can't and you don't need money's nice for it, but you know, you can outcreate to, to be able to do that. So I know when we did all those town halls for uh, cricket here in the U S in 15 and 16, that was a big part of our vision is to change a little bit of the mindset that focus on what you have versus what you don't have and the groundswell, the compounded growth, you know, to be able to do it. I remember, you know, we did a, at spring training, we took Anthony Rizzo from the Cubs, Ryan Braun from the Brewers as, um, as good examples and put them with a cricket bat and had cricketers teaching them cricket. And, you know, just the exposure that stuff like that gets, those are unique moments, didn't cost anything, you know, to be able to do that. And I think those are important lessons of doing something versus just 
talking about what you don't have to. 100%, 100%. And something else I think about with the Padres recently, I was in Las Vegas for a couple of days and I was walking through the casino floor. I think it was in the Venetian. And I saw somebody walking by with a Slam Diego t-shirt during the pandemic shortened season, 60 games, whatever it was in 2020. San Diego had a string of, I think it was four games in a row or five games in a row where they hit a grand slam. And Don Orsillo is the play-by-play guy for the Padres now used to be with the Red Sox, but he's the one who coined the term Slam Diego, Slam Diego, after I think the fourth or fifth one was hit. And boom, t-shirts off the rack and people eat them up. And that, that was essentially a free idea that just, off the cuff, the, the play-by-play guy, Don Orsillo, just turned San Diego into Slam Diego. And now, and I think, I can't remember if now in the left field or in the right field, they've got actually a sign that says Slam Diego, that they've turned it into something over the, the wall in left field or right field. But something like that, it just, when the door opens, you've got to seize on that. And, I, and that is another example, I would think, of something that, that didn't cost anything. It was just something that the, the play-by-play guy just said off the cuff, boom, take and run with it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's like, um, I, I would just, again, these are processes, right? But think like a fan, not an executive. I think sometimes we overthink things and the fans got behind that. So how do you give the fans a voice in the executive suite to be able to do it? And it's very authentic, right? Like, I mean, I remember at the MCG, right? The, the bird that got hit, a watermelon boy, right? Like all of these little things and you have a choice as an executive to put a magnifying glass on what the fans are uniquely passionate about in that moment. And that's where it becomes bigger than life. And, you know, going back to Mike Beck, right? Fun is good. What part of that isn't fun? And what that does is that controls the conversation in the office at the schoolyard the next day. And that's where you pull in more people that maybe aren't as into the X's and O's or the stats of a sport, right? And it makes it very welcoming. So I think those are brilliant examples of, you know, kind of shining a light on it. I think one of the things even here with cricket forefront right now is working on, we work with Chelsea Football Club and they're doing their trophy tour um, across the U.S. So our team's kind of bouncing around the country with the trophy right now, Chicago, Houston, Atlanta, Philly, New York. And the goal there is to allow people to have exposure to the trophy, both passionate fans and maybe emerging fans. So I think one of the things leading up to the 2024 World Cup that we really believe in is to bring the trophy, you know, kind of the the talking points that we have a million miles, a million smiles, right? Like allow a million kids to see this trophy on a journey across the US leading up to it because that's a way to maybe have those touch points in a unique way that is very engaging, right? And to me, you go to cost, right? Um, there's the cost of doing something and then there's the cost of not doing it. And you know that journey needs to start soon in order for um, that vision to really come to a reality too. So those are the things as a marketer that you think about, right? That outside of the venue, look at that experience you just had in Vegas, right? Cause somebody, you know, leaned into something the fans were interested in that happened organically. This has a shelf life beyond the moment. And I think, you know, you need to authentically look for ways to do that too. So people pay attention three years is, is it'll come up before, you know, it. 2024 world cup and Dan is already 
hard at work, working on ideas to market the event. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Now, you've had more than a decade of experience in the cricket world in the present day, starting with the BBL going back to, like you said, 2008, 2009. That was when you were first invited by James Sutherland. So you've got a hell of a lot of credit in the bank built up now to get on board with the T20 World Cup promotional campaign if the ICC or USA Cricket is engaging you. But way back in 2009, 2010, 2011, when the, the Big Bash was first getting off the ground and it was being conceptualized, you were invited by James Sutherland, as you said, but I can't imagine everybody you came across was 100% gung-ho about an American getting involved. Just very kind of stereotypically, I've experienced this. I'm talking with Don Lockerbie. He shared a number of stories. He was a former podcast guest, the former CEO of the USA Cricket Association back in the USACA era. And one of the main things he encountered that was a huge source of resistance, he had an incredible resume. He worked the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, he and Barcelona in 92 and 2000. He's, he's worked on at least six, seven, eight Summer Olympic Games, whether it's venue management or venue design and construction. He helped build the and design the uh, Homebush Bay Stadium in Sydney for the 2000 Olympics. He helped do a lot of venue design and management for the 1994 FIFA World Cup in the US uh, and, and so many other events. He's had just an incredible career and resume and and then that was how he got roped into being a venue design consultant and eventually hired as the COO of the 2007 Cricket World Cup in the West Indies parlayed that job into a job in USA Cricket as the CEO but when he came to the US and throughout his tenure Don would when I would ask him he would tell me and I would witness it at times people would have a hardline combative attitude towards him because the overriding thought for a lot of people was you didn't play cricket Cricket's not in your blood. What do you know about cricket, you American? He could have owned the New York Yankees or the Lakers or Manchester United and been one of the most illustrious sports businessmen in the world. He didn't have cricket in his blood. That's all people cared about. And no matter what ideas he came up with, or no matter the fact that he had the 2007 World Cup on his resume and helped renovate or build brand new stadiums around the Caribbean, People in the U.S. didn't care. A lot of people, significant people, influential people didn't care and didn't respect him for it. And I'm just curious, even though you had James Sutherland on your side, how much resistance did you face from other people administratively or from players themselves who also had to buy in to the Big Bash League concept? And how did you overcome those challenges if you faced them to get people on board with the vision that you had in which you thought would be the most successful way to, to help launch the league? Everything that you just described, I've felt that, you know, at various times on the journey, right? I'll take you back into a moment when we were, wasn't sure if a T20 league was going to be ready to go or not, right? So it's the state association CEOs were all there and we were going to look at, is this league going to happen, right? And what we learned and I had a whole presentation scheduled. I knew I was the Yankee coming in. You know, you do feel those things, right? We're all human beings, right? But what I learned in that moment was to almost hit it head on and address the elephant in the room. And I think um, that was kind of helpful to have learned from maybe the experiences of people like Don, you know, and what they would have went through. For me in particular, uh, Peter, um, I flew out to Melbourne one time had a meeting with Cricket Australia and the State Association CEOs 
on a Monday, there was an ODI at the MCG. And I was just walking around, you know, that kind of nerd, you know, in me, if you will, uh, taking pictures on the concourse. And there was a queue in the beer line of a bunch of guys waiting to buy beers. We've seen it. And then I looked over and there was an ice cream stand and I took a picture of the ice cream stand. There was nobody in line. And then during the innings break, I happened to go back to that same spot. The queue was longer for beer. This time I actually took a video of it. And then I went to take a video of the ice cream stand and literally the concession worker grabbed the gate and was closing it. So I changed my presentation a little bit. I said to all the, the folks in the room the next day, look, um, you know, you can listen to us or not. Um, here's what our perspective and experience tells us. And right now it's just the ice cream stand that's closing, but you've got a serious problem that no kids are coming to this. So probably the next thing, if you don't do this, the next thing it'll be the cricket ground that closes um, because you're gonna lose a generation. And I think I learned in that moment that you can't worry about the perceptions of it, but hit it head on. So fast forward, 2015, 2016, we're working on this transformation strategy for cricket in the US and um, went around, I think we did 15 different town halls across the country and like, I kind of hit it head on. Now's the time. And I challenged them. My son was, uh, he was born in 2014. He was one or two years old. I said, look, if you guys want to change this moment in time, uh, when was the last time you invited someone like me to play cricket or my son, your kids? The reality is right now you just talk about that. I'm not a cricketer. Well, how do I become one? Invite me to play, be more welcoming, invite your neighbor over to learn about the sport when you're watching the match. And it's a lot easier to do that in front of a room of people. Um, you know, once you kind of gain the confidence, but that was kind of a nice moment. So I've learned to, you know, maybe hit it head on. Uh, before they hit it with you. And I think the desire is there and it's changing the attitude a little bit versus, um, you know, just accepting that you're not a cricketer and trying to change that behavior. So my little guy, he's got a cricket bat. He's got stumps in the backyard. And, you know, I want him to play on the USA cricket team, seven years old, right? Uh, why can't he? And that's, if that's the pathway we, we believe in, it starts with that as a change you know, to, to be able to do that. So that, that's the message. That's been my experience. Um, because otherwise, like, what have we done in the past? The same thing. Where's it gotten us? What's the definition of insanity, right? If this is going to change, this is the moment. And we need the support and the welcoming and inclusion of the passionate cricketers to welcome people like me and my son. I actually was at one of the town halls in Los Angeles that was held right around the time of the cricket all-stars match in 2015, November, 2015 there. And that was where I first met you in person during the Q and a session. I had asked you something. And as part of that, I, I was hearing all these people in the room talk about, well, this is how this should happen. This is how that should happen. I, all these people have grand ideas about getting people engaged and getting people involved to play cricket. And I raised my hand. I shared my experience, which is was very contradictory to what everybody was saying about, oh, well, if we do this, it'll work. If we do that, it'll work. If we do this outreach, where my own personal experience and I'll help a lot of other people's personal experiences who are don't have cricket in their blood is that it's a very 
like you said, unwelcoming. It's a perfect word to use. It's not a very welcoming environment in the best of times. And you really have to persist if you want to get involved in cricket. The barrier to entry shouldn't be that high. It, it yeah. shouldn't be such a difficult obstacle to climb where you have to really beg and plead to get people who are supposed to be the ones recruiting newcomers to the game. You shouldn't have to beg and plead with them to get opportunities. I talked about how yeah, I, I my first experience is trying to join a cricket club. I, I wrote to 20, 25 cricket clubs, informing them that I'm a new player. I, I studied abroad in Australia. I've, I've spent time in England playing at a cricket club in England, and I want to get involved in the game locally now that I'm back in New Jersey after having graduated. And out of 20, 25 clubs, one responded. And then you said the same, the same line, essentially, to that stage. This is 2015, so after five, six years of involvement, you said, and all the time I've been involved in cricket, I've never had a single person ask me, would you like to play cricket? The room all of a sudden just, when you said that, the room felt silent. You could hear a pin drop. It's like, oh my yeah. God, are, are, we, are we really this way? Is it really this bad, the state of affairs? And just reflecting on that and hearing you share that again, I'm curious where you've actually met more resistance to some of your ideas to try and recruit people and to kind of transform the new wave of getting fans involved and getting players involved picking it up as a sport for the first time, like you said, your son, have you met actually more resistance in Australia to some of your ideas as an outsider being an American, or have you actually, would you say met more resistance in America, despite being a local, you're facing a a, a different kind of outsider perspective because the majority of the population who's involved in administrative affairs in the U S is primarily South Asian, West Indian expats. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. I, I'd say it's it's somewhat on the individual a little bit. You know when somebody is not aligned, right? But I've learned in that moment to just say, I want you to look five years ahead to the future, um, and here's why I need you to help me. And I think you remove the immediacy from it. That's been a way to kind of change it. Like I'd look at some of the in Australia is a good example you know, maybe some of those original ones that, you know, are at the traditional club membership at the MCG. This is Mickey Mouse cricket, the Yankees coming in, you know, in BBL 05, they were there with their grandchild on their lap with an ice cream cone wearing a Melbourne Stars hat and with a big smile and saying how grateful they were. So I think it's Peter getting them out of the moment there to be able to do it. I'll tell you, still getting the participation here is the struggle. The line that I give is I said that to a, a group of Australian cricketers. Do any of you want to invite me to play cricket? You know who did? Brett Lee. I've been in a cage with Brett Lee. Um, I've made contact against him. So what I like to say to a lot of the USA cricket community is if Brett Lee can invite me to play cricket, I would imagine that you guys could invite people like myself or Peter or my son to just go in the the park down the street and if we can get that message across um especially in this moment in time that we did achieve the world cup you know and that people can kind of touch and feel a bat that's really going to make a difference and that's something they can control and going back to your you know the mike vec lesson that doesn't cost anything to invite someone uh if everybody in the usa cricket uh fan base invited a neighbor to go feel a cricket back and hit it and invited them over to watch a match and explained it to them and learned a little of the traditions just like I did, 
that's a huge win in the growth of it, of owning that moment, right? And I think that's probably the most important thing that the USA cricket community can be doing right now if they're really passionate about the long-term growth of it. I want to ask one more question about U.S. cricket, but before this kind of ties into that, kind of how to market the game to a new audience in a new way or to, to an audience that hasn't really been cultivated as such yet. The 2020 Women's World Cup in Australia, you were part of the marketing team that was responsible for helping get almost a world record crowd for a women's sporting event. More than 80,000 people showed up to the final at the MCG, which was one of the final, if not the, the last sporting events before the pandemic really kicked off. Prior to that, there's really no history of women's sports or, or women's cricket being such a hugely successful spectator sport. If, if you separate it, say the Australian Open as a dual sport, men's and women's tennis, you could say every year you get 20,000 people at Rod Laver Arena and that's not an issue. But in terms of a team sport like cricket, having that many people turn out to a tournament final when there hadn't been that history in terms of fan support for women's cricket in Australia or anywhere in the world for that matter, what were some of the new initiatives and the things that you were able to put in place that you're most proud of that allowed that become such a huge success? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think the process parallels what the challenge for the 2024 World Cup is too. I give a lot of credit to Kevin Roberts, right, for the ambition and the vision for what was accomplished with the women's strategy to think bigger, right? And so that was the ambition. And then we worked with Nick Hockley, Teresa, and their team. And I think like just to kind of slow it down and speed it up, it's overwhelming to think about selling out a venue of that size. But if you start to look at like different audience sizes of groups of 5,000 people, um, different audiences that you want to come there, it doesn't seem as daunting anymore, right? And what is the why that somebody would come? So I think what we did really well, it's really a story of audience segmentation to get the cricket passionates, to get the parents of cricket passionates with daughters that this is a landmark moment to come. Katy Perry was a great leverage play, right? What is her fan base? We learned that from BBL how do you sell entertainment that happens to have a cricket match sometimes? That's a reason for getting people to come there. And then just a real data-driven strategy, which is exactly, I think, what we're looking to do for the World Cup here, to get people that have never really been to a cricket match a reason to come, right? It felt like a big spectacle. Um, and I think that's really important. It feels should be bigger than sport. So all of those messages, we might have been running 25 different messages out into the marketplace, but it resonates with different types of people um, that all give them a reason to buy a ticket. So, you know, that was an incredible achievement. Our team, we had a mix of Aussies on our staff and um, uh, Americans, uh, Tim Hurst, Brian Gaynor, Brooke Halverson, Katie Foglia, just as a few. And I think that was just kind of an all-in effort to you know, take the learnings of women's sport, BBL, uh, ticket sales strategy to do it. So I think that's a great parallel, Peter, to what we'll do with the World Cup here. You know, that you've got a grandiose vision, but you slow it down. We call it a disciplined sprint. Interesting, our alter ego on these things is Roger Bannister, uh, the great, you know, sprinter 
he was the first person to run a sub four minute mile. So I think just kind of changing the culture that you can do it and we're going to do something that's never been done before. So don't tell me why it won't work. We're convinced and we're kind of obsessed with making it happen. So whether that's the cricket world cup, we just did that with an MLS game on Thanksgiving here, uh, Colorado Rapids, largest TV audience, a sellout, you know, to be able to do it. It's that same kind of process that you go through, whether it's the Colorado Rapids or the first ever T20 World Cup here in the Americas, right? And that's what we love. And that's the moment that um, we're almost kind of backtracking and working on. The 2024 T20 World Cup, you referenced it. And one of the other things you referenced in the last answer about setting the, the record audience for women's cricket in Australia, the 2020 T20 World Cup final for the women's event in Australia and India is how do you get new people into the ground? How do you get people to come to their first match or newcomers first time walking to a cricket ground? And that's an even bigger challenge, arguably, in the USA. In my past experiences going to attend games in Florida, which is probably going to be one of the main venues used for the U.S. hosted matches, the venue in Lauderhill, Florida, when India has played the West Indies there, or if it's a T, uh, CPL, T20 match, 95% of the fans, I would say, are pre-existing cricket fans. They're the huge Indian expat fan base. You see a, a sea of blue jerseys and you're never going to have an issue selling them tickets and getting them into the ground. You would find some newcomers, first timers. And like you said, somebody who would be invited by a cricket fan to come on down. You got to see this. You got to be part of this experience. And they would have a good time and they would love it. And I would interview them and they said, absolutely, I would come back. But I think one of the huge obstacles to making that happen is the time zone for the World Cup. Cricket administrators more than likely are going to want to satisfy the Indian time zone and also the UK time zone. And previous evidence has shown when India has played in the US and Florida, those matches start at 1030 in the morning. That's not an ideal time for a, an American sports fan, especially one who's trying to be dragged to their first ever cricket match in their life, a sport that they don't know about. Why are they going to wake up at 1030 in the morning to get there? And if they play games in Dallas, it could be 930 in the morning to try and satisfy the primetime markets in India and the mid to late afternoon market in, in England. So my question is, how is it going to be possible or what is the best way that you feel will be successful in order to recruit new fans to come to World Cup match if it's going to be getting up at 8 a.m., 9 a.m. to be at the ground for a 10 o'clock start? I think of just getting all those issues out there and having an open discussion for us, uh, Peter, for a fan development strategy. Two things we know about the U.S. ticket buyer right now, we run a lot of digital ticketing strategies for NBA and NHL teams coming out of, especially this uh, pandemic, um, you know, different fan behaviors. The two things we've learned, FOMO and bucket list are the number one and two things that U.S. sports fans are looking for in a ticket buying decision. So FOMO, when we do creative messaging, we want to show a party like atmosphere, right? Like it's not about the star player, maybe, that we would just kind of set it and forget it of a traditional campaign. So the more in those markets that we can show that this is a FOMO experience and then also a bucket list, you know, this is the first time ever. That's what we learned, um, you know, even in Australia, people that were familiar with obviously the women's game but had never been, this is the bucket list game to go to, right? So the more that we can kind of create the bigness of the event and then I think we want to work with the ICC and the local organizing committee, cricket, um, uh, West Indies and USA cricket. I think if you do it right, you reverse engineer the building, right? Like of what you want the stadium to look like. 
and we need X percent of people that this is going to be their first ever experience. So what are we going to do to drive them regardless of what those variables are um, and allocate that inventory in the proper way? Because I, I agree with you. I think those past masters in Florida, it could be anywhere in the world. It didn't have a U.S. feel. So I think part of this is to have a U.S. and America, you know, even CPL like fan engagement strategy that is very welcoming, right? So it feels like a New York, you know, Mets game, an NBA game, um, all mixed in one. It should feel unique for the players as well to kind of cross pollinate that in a unique way that makes people feel welcome. Here's the key though. You've got to have a strategy after the game, after the World Cup to what's next, um, what's around the corner. So we think about it as a social engagement strategy. I am going there, I am here and I was there and now I'm doing this, right? Like what's the bridge, the baton, whether it's major league cricket, it's another you know, traveling series. I think that's very important because this is gonna be the bridge just learning like what we saw with the 94 FIFA match too. Peak curiosity. And for any US cricketers that are listening to this, invite people like me to play cricket. Can't stress it enough. Invite my son, invite me over for the ashes, you know, that are coming up because that really matters if we're really gonna change the, uh, um, the heartbeat and the bloodline of sport in this country. We'll be looking forward to that in 2024, Dan. All right, favorite 11, 11 questions rapid fire. First up, your favorite actor from the original Bill Swirsky's Superfan sketch on SNL. Joe Mantegna, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, or Robert Smigel? I mean, Chris Farley. Who doesn't love that heart attack? And any Chicago sports fan, that's standard. So well well done. Your favorite way to spend a 14-hour flight to or from Australia? I'd start out with a movie that my wife does not want to watch. Probably a Marvel movie, a great glass of wine and a good documentary and then fall asleep at about three o'clock in the morning you know chicago time is my way to go to to nail that flight perfectly your favorite city or country that you have toured for sports related work uh melbourne your favorite cricket ground experience that you've had what's your favorite experience you've had uh, at the my ground? first time ever at sydney cricket ground just blew my mind i felt at home there Everything about the tradition, the food, the vibe was spectacular. Favorite cricketer of all time? I'm going to go with Ricky Ponting just because he was the very first one that I met and he was incredibly gracious to me when I didn't know who he was and I'm forever grateful for that. Favorite non-cricket athlete of all time? Uh, Ryan Sandberg. A Chicago and you had to, that was inevitable. Yeah. Your favorite place to eat out? on tour away from home i'm gonna go there's a restaurant in melbourne called attica that uh anthony everard and i've had some great meals there and it's one of my favorite spots on the road your favorite hot dog place in chicago wiener circle your favorite pizza topping uh pepperoni lou malnati's with butter crust your favorite movie of all time i'm going with the natural another baseball classic and finally your favorite show to binge watch on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Paramount Plus, when you're locked away in the pandemic or somewhere else and you've got all the time in the world to kill, what do you watch to pass the time? I love watching, I'm a, I'm a guitar player. I love watching just random music documentaries. I could just get lost in it. The Beatles get back right now, I'm, I'm into, but just searching albums. I just did Peter Gabriel's So, 
is one example. And um, I just, I just love that when I can zone out. Dan Magal, a co-founder of Forefront. Thank you so much for coming on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. We'll give you the final word. Anything else you want to say to people about your experiences in cricket that you would like them to know about you? I mean, it's just been the most passionate thing I think we've been able to do professionally. And just thank you in the long run for being so welcoming and continue to invite people like me to play cricket and help kind of break that down. And Peter, thanks for all you do for the game as well. Uh, and kind of a cricket in the U.S. soulmate uh, for all we're trying to do. So thank you. And uh, Rick Flair would be proud as the tag team partner that you are. And uh, we're really looking forward to 2024. Rick Flair, a North Carolina native. We got to get him out to Morrisville, North Carolina, to get him to a cricket game in Morrisville. Dan? That actually, I'm on that. I'll add that to the strategy uh, so we can leverage WWE passionates into Cricket fans, you heard it here first. Ric Flair, open invitation for the 2024 World Cup in Morristown. Let's make it happen. That would be the highlight of the event, not just for me, but for a hell of a lot of people, Dan. Yeah. Make it happen. Amazing. Okay, no pressure. I'm on it. Dan McGollum from Forefront, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great. Thank you, Peter. Considering all the success that Dan Magala has had inside and outside of cricket, but most recently with the promotion of the Women's T20 World Cup Final in Australia getting 86,000 people into the MCG, it's exciting to think about all the possibilities that are in store for the 2024 T20 World Cup that's going to be co-hosted in the USA, especially if he can get the nature boy, Ric Flair. Woo! If you enjoyed Dan Magala, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, so that you can get the latest episodes of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast whenever they are published. That's it for this episode. I'm Peter Delpena, reminding everybody, God bless America, and God bless American Cricket. Cricket.